please do take a seat. And uh, let me add my welcome to, uh, to Mookas if we haven't met or if this is your first time. My name is uh, Mitch Spence and I'm one of the uh, elders here at uh, Living Hope Church. And it's great to have you with us uh, this afternoon. Please do stick around for some tea after the service. We'd love to get to know you uh, a little bit more and for you to hear a little bit more about uh, us as a church. And thanks to Tamuka for uh, leading for us. Uh, it is great to have uh, interns, apprentices who are learning to lead services, learning to preach. Uh, and so uh, thank you for leading us this afternoon. We are uh, at the end of a series in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11 and 12, and it is my great uh, joy, although it hasn't been easy, to try and wrap up our time in uh, Daniel this afternoon, and to do it with the children at the back uh, of the service uh, as well. We are a family church, we love having kids with us, but it is school holidays, and so they do join us, and so please don't worry about a little bit of uh, noise uh, this afternoon. But we have a, a fair amount to get to. Uh, to get through in uh, Daniel 11 and 12. And so why don't um, I read for us? We have some more reading to do, and then I'm going to pray, and then um, let me preach this uh, sermon to us. So Daniel chapter uh, 12 and verse 1, we're going to pick up from where uh, Adrian left off. Daniel 12 uh, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let me uh, pray for us this afternoon. We are going to, we're going to need it. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for your word as always, even those parts of your word which are hard and difficult to understand. And Father, we praise you that you speak to us through them and by your Spirit, making us wise for salvation. And so, Father, we pray this afternoon that you would, by your Spirit, 
Make us wise for salvation. Open our ears to hear your words. Open our eyes to see your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him would you make us strong to be those who are wise, those who stand firm in this twisted and crooked generation. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. We return this afternoon to a question that we've uh, already come up against and has um, uh, kind of plagued us, I suppose, through the second half of this uh, book of Daniel from chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 12. Uh, We first faced it in chapter 8. And the question is, where will you turn when faced with a future full of turmoil and tyranny? How will you live in a world plagued by turmoil and tyranny? If on the 24th of August, one day after our elections, uh, the day comes and goes and nothing changes, when faced with an outlook that seems to be full of tyranny and turmoil, where will you turn? How will you live? But what happens if it's not just for five more years? What happens if it's for 50 more years? Or 500 more years, or worse, thousands of years. Where will you turn? How will you live? How will you navigate that way of life in the face of a future full of turmoil and tyranny? Because that was the the headache that Daniel was facing. Yes, uh, 10 verse 1, Cyrus, the king of Persia, he had decreed that the people of Israel could now go home. They could return to Jerusalem. They could return to a a culture that they knew, a place where they felt at home. But the big event in Daniel's day, the return from exile, was turning out to also be the big non-event in history. Sure, they could rebuild the temple, but anyone who knew the size and scale of Solomon's temple cried when they saw how small and pathetic the foundations of this temple were. Sure, they could rebuild Jerusalem, but it would only ever be a small provincial town, never again a capital city of a magnificent empire. More worrying is that the reality on the ground for those who returned to Jerusalem was not living up to the great prophecies of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. Nations were not flocking to them. Their homeland looked more like a wasteland than the new creation. They were meant to be given new hearts, but they kept on sinning. Nehemiah in uh, Nehemiah 13:25, he ends up pulling out the hair of the people for their sin. Talk about a slightly different way of doing church discipline. Uh, Ezra, he pulls out his own hair when he sees the sin of the people. You see, the big event in Daniel's day did not turn out to be the end of the world. Neither was it any kind of political deliverance. And it's causing Daniel a a massive headache. In fact, the whole second half of Daniel has been giving him headaches, hasn't it? And migraines and anxiety. In uh, chapter 8, verse 27, he's so astonished by the vision that he sees, he's so concerned by what he sees, that it sends him to bed for a few days with man flu that he cannot get up from. It's only after a few days that he returns back to service because of how bad the vision is that he sees. Because as we've been seeing the whole way through the second half of Daniel, in chapter 7 to 12, God has been revealing to Daniel, hasn't he? 
that the return to Jerusalem was not the return from exile promised by the prophets. That is the big issue in the book of Daniel. That in some sense, the return to Jerusalem was a very, very minor horizon with a sea of mountains stacked up behind it. He could see the small horizon, but couldn't see much beyond that. And God is revealing to him just how big a mountains that there are stacked up behind it. Yesterday, we took our, our kids cycling uh, in the Metopus, which was <coughs> a lot of fun and, s- and slightly frustrating at the same time. And Metopus is a big place uh, for a little kid, and Finn is only five and on his little uh, BMX. And at one point, um, it appeared to him at least like the, the corrugations in those dirt roads, like each one of those felt like a big hill for him to get up and down, right? There is the, the car and the, the big bikes kind of just going over the top of it, but Finn is kind of like doing like this, every single one. And, and at one point, he's so fixated on the corrugations, okay, these little things, that he fails to see the massive hill coming up uh, in front of him. And in one sense, in one sense, God is lifting Daniel's eyes, isn't he? He's lifting his head from what he thinks is the big event in history to show him that it's, it's not the end of the world and neither is it even a political deliverance. In fact, in fact, through the second half of Daniel, God has been revealing to him that the forces of evil will dominate human history for thousands of years to come. And that makes Daniel's head hurt. Think about it. And think about it particularly from Daniel's perspective. You see, we're, we're so used to it, I think, that we don't even uh, recognize just, just how, how weird and strange and um, crazy this world is. But to Daniel, the kind of, of world that God is saying will, will continue for hundreds if not thousands of years is in fact a crazy world. You see, if God is in control of the events of history, that he not only knows but orchestrates the rise and fall of nations, of kings, of empires, then a world in which the forces of evil dominate, that's a weird, weird world. It's a crazy world. A world where people can worship other gods and prosper, that is a crazy world. A world in which people can mock God and disregard his commandments and laws. A world in which people can persecute and even kill his people, his beloved people, and get away with it. That that is a strange place to be if God is in charge of and in control of the events of history. And Daniel has been living in that world in Babylon for 70 years. And he was desperate to see the back of it, wasn't he? He was looking forward to going home and being done with exile. But to learn that exile would now be coming home with him, well, that is a crazy and weird world that he was struggling to comprehend. And it gives him migraines, it gives him a headache. And yet that crazy, weird world, it's our world, is it not? The world in which the forces of evil dominate and get away with it. That's our world. The world that Daniel saw and thought and and felt was weird and strange is the world that we live in today. It's just that we've become so accustomed to it. 
that it almost feels normal. We hardly recognize that it's crazy, that it's weird. It just kind of is. But Daniel sees it coming, and his head hurts. It sends him spinning. And in chapters 10 to 12, so 10, 11, and 12, God gives Daniel one kind of final vision of the political landscape to come. Not just the next few hundred years, but right up until the end of time. And eternity begins. It's kind of one a long vision that takes three chapters to cover. It's one that took us through our, the first half of it uh, last week. It's uh, so long and complex. And so we're going to pick up uh, in 11 verse 20, a, a part of the passage that we didn't actually read today because it's quite long, and a part that we're actually quite familiar with in some ways. But in chapter 10, uh, God is outlining to Daniel why he can trust this vision. And in chapter 11, God is outlining what will take place in the future. And then in chapter 12, God is outlining what will take place at the end. And in, um, in Daniel chapter 11, God is, is kind of highlighting uh, again um, just how in control of and how a sovereign he is over the world. We get so much detail, so much uh, specificity uh, the rise and fall of Babylon, the rise and fall of Persia, the rise and fall of Greek, and then the Roman uh, Empire. This is a history that Daniel is recording for us hundreds, if not thousands of years in advance of it happening. As Tawanda said last week, it's so accurate that liberal scholars say it's too accurate. And so it must have been written after the event. Unless, of course... Your God is the God who's in control of the events of human history, which is kind of the whole point of this book. And we don't have too much time to get into that, but feel free to uh, Google and see some of those events of history. But instead, we pick up in 11 verse 20. So this is after the fall of Babylon, after the rise and fall of the Persian Empire, um, verse 2, after the rise and fall of the, um, the great uh, Greek uh, king, Alexander the Great. That's in chapter 11 verse 3. But the Greek Empire then splits, and it splits into four. And two of those kingdoms, the Ptolemite kingdom in the south and the Seleucid kingdom in the north, well, they basically border. Their border meets where Jerusalem is. And if you want a little bit of uh, advice, don't live in a place where two great warring nations meet. Because as they continue to war and rage war against one another, It is not going to go well for you who live in that border zone. As the south dominates the north, so you get hammered. As the north dominates the south, so you get hammered over and over again. And in verse 21 of our passage, Daniel 11, 21, a contemptible person rises to power in the north. So this is in the Seleucid kingdom. And he's known as Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, and he rules from roughly 175 to 164 BC. And he is a raving madman. In fact, he is and becomes the archetypal evil ruler in the Bible. We've heard of him before, Tawanda mentioned him last week, but he's also the little horn in Daniel's vision in chapter 8. And he's hell-bent, isn't he, on hammering the people of God. And the worst of it comes in verses 29 and 30. He decides to have another crack at, con- at conquering uh, Egypt in the south, 
And as he goes down to, to wage war against Egypt, he is humiliated by a Roman ambassador. So in verse 30, uh, the ships of Kittim, that is the Roman uh, ambassador and his ships. And the Romans are not a big, powerful people yet. They're the new kids on the block. They're small. And so this is an incredibly humiliating moment for Antiochus. As he's turned around by a small Roman ambassador. In verse 30, he turns back, doesn't he, enraged? And it's on his way home, back up north, that he takes it out in Jerusalem in a pretty big way. Verse 31, he profanes the temple. Verse 31 again, he sets up the abomination in the temple. And it becomes that Antiochus is now the archetypal evil ruler in the Bible. Just as, I suppose, um, King David is a type of the Christ to come, so Antiochus becomes a type of the Antichrist. There are things about him that show us what it means to be an evil ruler. And even Jesus, in Mark chapter 13, he points back to Antiochus when he predicts and he prophesies of the destruction of the temple all over again in AD 70 unto the Romans. He describes this coming destruction of the temple in AD 70 as the abomination that causes desolation. He points all the way back to Antiochus and says, this is the model, this is the kind of thing we are to expect. Antiochus is now the archetypal evil ruler in the Bible. And I do encourage you to go home and to Google, to Google this period of history, because the predictions of Daniel 11, as they relate to Greek history, they do so with stunning accuracy. When it comes to verses 1 to 36, and then even chapter 8, there's no, there's no debate about who's who and what's what. Everyone, everyone agrees that Daniel is talking about Babylon, Persia, Greek, and Rome, hundreds if not thousands of years before they actually come about. It is with stunning accuracy. The section, however, which almost no one agrees on is verses 36 to 41, 45. Uh, you can uh, click on a different site and from one site to the next get a completely different take on who's who here and what's what. And if you don't know it already, there are some mad people on the internet, and they love these kind of passages. And so you will find some mad interpretations out there. But for what it's worth, I don't think that verses 36 to 45 are actually speaking about Antiochus, or even the period immediately after him. Rather, they are speaking symbolically of the kinds of evil rulers who will follow in his footsteps patterned after him, just like their archetype, Antiochus. The time in the picture is the end, isn't it? Verse 40. But even that's a little bit hazy. Is it the last days, the end times, like a, a period of time? Or is it the last day, the end of time, a kind of climactic moment? And even if you think that this should be straightforward, if you read on in verse 14, uh, so read with me if you have your uh, Bibles uh, open. He says, but um, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rise upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And so if you think it's fairly straightforward, then what you're essentially saying is that we in the world are going to have to relearn how to operate chariots and to ride horsemen, to ride horses with uh, swords, 
and to navigate ships and those kinds of things. The reality is that most people will kind of convert this language to talking about things like tanks and missiles. But the moment you do that, you're taking it to be symbolic rather than literal language. And symbolism is not easy to interpret um, so straightforward, is it? What is important for us to recognize, I think, is that if, if Antiochus is the archetypal kind of evil ruler, then there are traits in him that we can and should expect to see in the evil rulers of the world today. And for us in Zim, I think this just becomes so obvious, doesn't it? A little bit close to home. Antiochus rises to power, verse 21, through cunning and flattery. His sole quest, verse 26, is for absolute autonomy. Verse 26, even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall... That's not the right passage. Hold on one second. 36, sorry. Uh, And the king shall do all that he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He's after absolute autonomy. Not only that, verse 37, he openly mocks God and has a complete disregard for humanity. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to one or to the one beloved by a woman. He shall not pay, pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. And it's worth mentioning here, I think it's striking, isn't it, how uh, the mention of, of women comes up here and how often evil rulers, patterned after Antiochus, shamefully and shamelessly treat the women in their lives. Their mothers, their sisters their wives, and others. And don't we know that in Zimbabwe as well? Those in power, those who thirst for more, how they treat the women in their lives. And as is so often the case with these wicked rulers, they live by the mantra that might is right. Uh, Verse 38 and 39. They use force and the abuse of power in almost every area of their lives, not just the public spheres. And so to paraphrase one commentator, wherever we see these traits in a ruler, we know, the enmity, we know that there is enmity to the kingdom of God. And it's a sad reality, I think, that too, all too often we see this, don't we? We see these traits in our own rulers. We experience of living under this kind of rule. So the big question we're faced with again is, where will you turn? How will you live in this crazy, weird world where the exile continues, where tyranny and turmoil reign? Because there are two options, aren't there? Verse 32 and 33, you have the choice to be wise, to resist, to stand firm the evil that is all around you, because you know your God. Or to be seduced by the cunning and flattery of evil and powerful men. To be wise or to be seduced. Because we know from the rest of Daniel, don't we, that all kings have a king. We know that God is in control of the events of history. We know that for all presidents everywhere, the writing is already on the wall. And so to, to take our, our medicine, 
and humble ourselves before the King of Kings. Or as we saw in the likes of Daniel chapter 5, the hand of God will humble you sooner or later. And that's a warning to us, but that's actually a warning to all rulers, all presidents, everywhere. That was the whole point of the, the episode with Belshazzar. And so we shouldn't be surprised, I don't think, to read that at the end in verse 45, all evil rulers and even the Antichrist himself, just like Antiochus, will be brought to an end, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Verse 45 at the end, after all this detail about what he's going to do and how powerful he's going to be and how he's going to act, verse 45, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And again, we Zimbabweans can look back over our recent history to know that people who seemed all-powerful have since disappeared with just a whimper. But there is hope in this final vision, is there not? It's just that it's not a political hope, but an eternal hope. I read me uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 1 Uh, B and 2. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And it's easy, I think, to miss this because we're so used to the idea of eternity and life after death. From a New Testament standpoint, that's basic to our faith. But for Daniel... This is new information. In the scheme of salvation history, from Daniel's perspective, the big event, the big horizon in front of him is a political deliverance, is an earthly salvation. But from Daniel chapter 12 onwards, that all changes. Because just as God has been drastically reshaping, expanding Daniel's vision of the forces of evil at play in this world, so now Daniel's vision of salvation is radically reshaped and expanded. Even dead people are now going to be part of God's deliverance, verse 2. No longer a temporal deliverance bound by time and geography and world politics. This is an everlasting, eternal salvation. Hundreds and thousands of years in the future. And interestingly, verse 3, it's again the wise who will shine. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We keep coming up against this, this um, description of those who are wise, those who stand firm. They are going to be part of this great deliverance. And Daniel wants to ask the obvious question, doesn't he? He wants to ask when, when is this going to happen? But someone beats him to it in verse uh, 6. And unsurprisingly, the answer produces another headache, doesn't it? Verse 7. For a time, times, and half a time. I'm not sure that we're meant to know precisely how long a time, times, and half a times is. Daniel tries, doesn't he? Verse 8. But he's basically told to go away. Verse 9. And so if Daniel doesn't even understand and can't get an answer, then I'm not sure that we can either. But what we do know, and I think that what we can understand, is that it is for a definite time, a specific time, and a limited time, and then God will bring it to an end. 
And again, I don't think we're meant to take the days of verses 11 and 12 literally either. Right, so the 1,290 days and then the 1,335 days. We're not meant to get out our Google calendar and begin ticking off the days and waiting for those days to be done, but rather to see them symbolically and to see them being um, short and definite. 1,290 days and then 1,335 days, just a few more days. Just a, a little time longer and then the end will come. Which means, again, we come full circle to our big question. Where will you turn? How will you live in this crazy, weird world of tyranny and turmoil where exile persists? And this is where I'd like to draw things to a close this afternoon. Because the big emphasis throughout Daniel is teaching us where to turn and how to live in a crazy and weird world of prolonged tyranny and turmoil. It's not just teaching Daniel how to live in Babylon for 70 years. This book of Daniel is teaching you and me how to live when Babylon comes home for 700 years. And the answer is not, is not just settle in and get used to persecution. It's not the answer. The answer is, however, know your God. Know that your God reigns. Know that your God is the King of kings. Know that his kingdom will one day triumph. Know that his deliverance is not an earthly political deliverance. Know that he is in control of the events of human history, that he he raised up Babylon and lowered her. Persia, Greece, Rome. Know this, God, and in those moments when you're tempted to be seduced by the the power and wealth and, and flattery of wicked and evil men. Instead, choose to live wise. Choose to resist them. Choose to stand with Christ. Choose to stand for Christ. That is the whole point of Daniel. Daniel is trying to get to grips with, I thought we were going home to a place where you lived and where only righteousness dwelt. And he begins to see the no, the new world order is that the forces of evil will continue to dominate the political landscape. But here's the thing. When Babylon comes home, as exile continues in this weird and crazy world, the wise life will only be seen to be wise at the very end. Think about it. The contrast between the first half and the second half of the book of Daniel. The first half, chapters 1 to 6, you might want to call the book of happiness. The second half, 7 to 12, the book of headaches. And the choice, the choice between the the foolish decision or the wise decision in the first half of the book is revealed almost immediately. Belshazzar chooses to be foolish, and in moments the hand of God is writing on the wall, and he's humbled that night. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they choose to be wise and not bow to the king, and they're thrown into the furnace, and immediately they are rescued. It's shown to be a wise decision. Daniel, chapter 6, chooses not to stop praying to his God, and he's thrown to the lions, and immediately there is an angel who, who shuts up the mouths of the lions, and he is rescued, and he's seen to be wise, to have stuck with Jesus. I could live in that world. 
where every time we made a wise decision for Jesus, it was repaid immediately, that he rescued us from whatever situation we find ourselves in. But that's not the world we live in. Because in chapter 7 to 12, the book of headaches, the choice to be foolish or wise is only revealed right at the very end. Compromise with evil and wicked men now, and you may look to have made a wise decision. You may look to be the wise person now. But you will be seen to be foolish. Only time will, t- will, will tell. Whereas if you know that your God reigns, if you know that he is in charge and he rules over all and that his kingdom will triumph in the end, and you stand firm with Jesus, and you stand firm for Jesus, you may look like a fool in the moment. You may even look like a fool for a lifetime. You may even be killed by an Antiochus-like leader. And yet we now know, don't we, from Daniel chapter 12, that even the dead who stand with Jesus will be revealed to be wise because his is not an earthly political deliverance but an eternal deliverance and his kingdom will know no end. And so that I think empowers and frees us and liberates us to choose to live wise in this crazy weird world we find ourselves in, this world where where it seems like the forces of evil dominate. And so let me pray for us uh, as we close. Let me pray that God would help us to choose to live wise in a world where it looks like the forces of evil dominate. But we know that our God rules and reigns. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for our time in Daniel these last couple of months, however hard the second half of this book has been. And yet, Father, we praise you for the truth, for the reality for the knowledge that you're a God who reigns and rules, for a God whose kingdom will one day triumph. Father, we pray that like Daniel, as we see you in control of the events of history, so we are encouraged, so we're strengthened to choose to be wise in this moment. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, that you did show to Daniel that the forces of evil would dominate this world for years to come, that exile has not ended. And yet, Father, we pray that we are those who are strengthened, who are strong, who live for the great return from exile, when your Son, the Lord Jesus, returns. And so, Father, help us in this moment. Help us in this life. Help us in this this world, in this country, where it seems like so often um, the wise decision uh, ends up with us looking foolish, ends up with us looking weak, Uh, ends up with us looking um, as if we've been taken advantage of. Father, help us to know you and to know that you reign and rule. And even our rulers will one day answer to you. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.